Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're looking at the G20, one of the world's huge diplomatic gatherings. We're also looking at its host nation, India, or as Narendra Modi has started calling it at the summit, Bharat, its ancient Sanskrit name. This week, world leaders met in New Delhi to discuss economic cooperation and cooperation on lots of other things. But underlying that were wider tensions. Both Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping were absent from what some have described as India's coming out party as a global power. Likewise, Ukraine remains an ever-present sore spot between many of the countries there. We're going to discuss all that and more. And we're going to look more broadly at India as well. Last year, it surpassed China on many figures to be the most populous country on Earth. And last month, it even landed a rover on the moon. Where does India sit in the world? Is it sitting comfortably? Well, I've got, as always, in fact, a great panel here. Joining me down the line is Dr. Samir Puri. He's in Singapore at the moment, visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College, London. Welcome, Samir. Thanks very much for having me, Bob. Great to have you here. And then I've got uh, two colleagues in the studio. First, Dr. Chitaj Bajpayee, our new South Asia fellow who's joined us this week at the Institute. A very warm welcome. Thank you, Bronwyn. Pleasure to join you today and excited to be joining Chatham House. It's great. I've seen you in every room in the building this week talking to colleagues. And I was just having to break off a conversation right now between you and Dr. Leslie Venjamori, who runs our America's program and writes on many, many things. And you were discussing many things you've got in common. Indeed. And it's it's great to meet you in person for the first time. Great. Well, more of that to come. But Leslie, you have nobly offered to explain to us, to start off with, with what the G20 is. It is a great question. It's a really important organization, I would argue, not everybody would. Um, An informal multilateral organization. It doesn't really have bricks and mortar and a big bureaucracy. Originated in 1999, um, it really came into its own um, around the financial crisis, but it is essentially a grouping of 19 countries plus the European Union now plus the African Union, of course, that's new. So that's uh, another 50 countries coming in. So so when it sounds like 20 com- uh, countries, exactly, it's actually much more. The it whole is. EU is in there. But only one seat at the table, right? Which yes. is which is yes. the which is the tricky thing. But you know, if you add those original twenty together, that today is between eighty and eighty-five percent of the world's economy. So really substantial. But it was you know really to set up, and again really came into its own around the global financial crisis to bring these major economies together to try and deal with what was a really challenging moment in international relations. It's designed to be more flexible, um, and. Its mandate, of course, over over time has has grown sig- significantly. If it was set up originally to, to to talk about managing the global economy, now it's got climate change and digital cooperation and gender issues and and debt restructuring, all sorts of things come onto the agenda. But it really is, a, in some ways, a new form of multilateralism in the scheme of the post-war period. On the grand scale, but the way you're describing it, you would, I guess, answer it really does matter. It does matter because, you know, where are you going to go? It doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that you get phenomenal action. But when you've got a global economy with multiple major players, it's radically different. The distribution of economic power is radically different today than it was in 1945 or 1950 when when other organizations were set up. Um, And so this reflects the major players that should be able to come together and, and, and make real change. They don't always do that, but it's important that they're at the table together. 
Chita Chan, would you compare its influence to the G7, uh, just the seven uh, old uh, industrialized countries? Well, I think if you would argue from an Indian perspective, they would say that the influence has grown uh, and the balance of power has shifted. Uh, I would potentially challenge that to a degree. I think we've seen in the aftermath of the war in Ukraine, there's greater consensus or alignment within the G7 than we see within the G20, and particularly with the absence of two prominent world leaders at the most recent summit, uh, President Xi of China and President Putin of Russia, uh, we can see that there is a degree of, of uh, or fissures that do exist within the, the G20 structure. Samir, so, what did it mean to India to host this? This has been an enormous event for India, and the scale of uh, the G20 events have actually covered several different cities. They've encompassed all sorts of different uh, things uh, around, for example, Think20, which was a gathering of think tank experts. So lots of things happening behind, I think, the scenes as well. But what it means for India is really a massive statement on the world stage that its time has come. But more specifically for Narendra Modi, it's been a real, I think, personal vindication of his style of leadership, which is actually quite personality-based. His face has been uh, uh, planted on quite a lot of the promotional uh, material inside of the country. So I think there's there's a yield for India at the global stage, but there's also a yield for Modi himself, presenting himself as this great global statesman. Uh, let's not forget a, a year ahead of an Indian election. And thank you for bringing that very visual element to it, which we sometimes forget with all the communiques rushing around. Well, let's look at what did come out of it, which was um, less than some had hoped. We had a controversial communique which did not criticise Russia by name for the invasion of Ukraine, but uh, criticised that kind of thing. And we had a couple of very specific pledges uh, for a new transit corridor between Europe, Middle East and Asia. Um, and uh, maybe a Gulf uh, rail link um, that might include Israel. No idea about where the money for those things were coming from and some, some uh, to me, wishful thinking about World Bank resources going up. Leslie, what did you make of what came out? Well, I, I do think it's, you know, in, in global context, in the perspective of, you know, if you start with that horrendous day when Russia actually did uh, invade Ukraine, the idea that, what are we, 18 months later, that you actually got a leader statement at all, given that India has declined to call out and to join the UN and those resolutions calling out Russia's invasion. The, the idea that there was a leader's um, agreement, a statement, is, is pretty remarkable. So I think, you know, are you half, a glass half empty person or are you glass half full person? The second thing I would say is, I very much agree with with Samir. Um, you know, this is. I think you have to think about the G20. We tend to focus on what came out of it in this two days, but it was a process. It was a year long process. Uh, I participated, as you know, in the T20. I was on the the, the working group for uh, reformed multilateralism. Traveled to many of those meetings across the country, and it really was a process of bringing people into this ambition that India has to be a, a leader of the global south of the developing countries, but also to have a, a, a very significant role uh, more generally. Um, and as, as Jay Shanker said, it was about getting India ready for the world, and it was getting the world ready for India. So that, I think, you have to look at the entire year. And during the course of that year, um, what I've been really watching is that uptick in the solidity of the U.S.-India partnership, which we know has been in, in motion and in track for a very long time, but really has come into its own during the course of India's leadership of, of the G20. 
Uh, yeah, and just to add to that, I think the symbolism was as important as the substance. So I think, you know, Samir mentioned this, but uh, the fact that I think that India has essentially managed to democratize the G20 to some extent, both within India by hosting events across the country and turning what's been largely uh, an elite event into an event that's open to the masses, and also globally by raising the voice of the global south, uh, and also being able to offer Indian solutions to global issues, so whether it be climate sustainability or global health or digital public infrastructure. So I think that's uh, those are some of the more uh, symbolic uh, achievements that have come out of the uh, G20 summit. Do you agree with that, Samir? Yes, I do. I think there's uh, the fact that it's happening now, as Leslie is saying as well, around this moment when we're really noticing the world economy and global power is just arranged very differently to the way it was about 15 or 20 years ago. That's been really apparent uh, during this G20. Uh, the previous one was, was hosted by Indonesia, and it was somewhat apparent then, but it's been really apparent now. Just one thing I'd, I'd observe about the G20 this year is it came uh, just a few weeks after the BRICS summit in South Africa, and Narendra Modi actually travelled to South Africa as well. So there's quite a lot going on, and a lot of it's overlapping. I think that's wh where it can sometimes be a little bit confusing, uh, because where does the G20 sit in relation to the BRICS, in relation to the G7? I think unscrambling those questions is actually going to be a real part of foreign policy analysis, you know, for the next few years, for the next for the next era. I think certainly. It's a really good question of whether these groupings are valuable or not. And obviously their, their power can come and go. But we've had a lot of discussion about the BRICS and whether this 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 grouping based on um, the one the one word um, acronym devised by uh, the investor Jim O'Neill, our former chairman, uh, suddenly it's run away. It's become a diplomatic reality very much under China's instigation of can it can it get a group of of, of countries um, who, in a sense, maybe anti-Western, um, but Brazil is very loud and saying, well, look, we don't want to be part of an anti-Western grouping. We want to be part of a very independent grouping. And so we've had that the discussion vigorously in Chatham House of whether the BRICS will will come to anything. Um, Leslie, what did, you, did it matter that President Xi and, um, and President Putin weren't there? Well, it certainly... Um in China's case, easier. in contrast to the BRICS. Well, yeah. I mean, it made it easier to, it certainly made it easier to get to that statement. To get any statement, um, to get on, any on, statement which out. is essentially on uh, Ukraine. It also, you know, it also, I guess, sort of opened up the space to really focus on India and to focus on second, I would say, the US and India. If, if she had been there, I think we would have all been watching Biden and Xi to see what was happening and what those sort of small as well as big moments look like. I think it would have, you know, put India not quite in the same position that it, that it was. It certainly would have been better for the, what the G20 is, is intended to do to demonstrate that everybody turns up and everybody takes it seriously. But I think it was reflective of a moment where, let's be honest, the critiques of international order are coming from every single corner. Whether it is, you know, neoliberalism is a highly unequal uh system and it's infused throughout all the multilateral institutions. That's a critique that Biden's taken on board, whether it's India saying we don't have a seat at the table and we need to have a seat on the Security Council. We need more power across um, multiple institutions, whether it's you know Russia saying we don't care about what you think sovereignty is um, through its actions. And this G20 in some ways, you know, reflected that we are at a highly contentious moment in international order and India is going to try and lead that. And sometimes other very major powers, i.e. China, aren't going to follow.
What did it say, Chidij, about relations between India and China? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Xi's absence from the G20 is in some ways could be regarded as a snub, but, you know, a challenge to China in New Delhi's claim to be, uh, you know, a voice of the global south. Um, and essentially, she's shunning a forum where, where China is not on the, on the center stage. Uh, but I think it also shows to a degree, you know, perhaps China's growing indifference towards the G20 as Beijing continues to down, uh, downgrade its importance in favor of other emerging market groupings such as the, uh, such as the BRICS or the expanded BRICS. Samir, go on. I, I was just about to uh, to make a comment on on this notion of, of anti-West because I've been given this quite a lot of thought based on also what we're hearing from uh, from the other guests. They're sort of anti-West and they're sort of Western sceptic and then there's kind of in spite of the West. And I'd very much put India very much in that latter category there. I was clearly happy to develop their defence relationship with the USA but they're also very happy to act in spite of the West and, and to, to take their own path. And that's very different to, I think, being anti-Western. I don't really get that sense uh, with, with India at all. Of course, you get that much more with China, uh, given the intensity of its rivalry and that there are some mutually exclusive trade-offs in some of the things that, that China and the US are pursuing. Yeah, sorry, uh, I, meant, I, I meant before, well, was, was that what China was exploring in, in trying to get the BRICS together in the way that it did? Yes, and I think expansion of the BRICS in particular really serves China's interests more than it does India's. Uh, so I think that's why India put so much stake in the G20, because it will certainly allow uh, India to take centre stage in a forum that, that it feels it can put its stamp on it in a more direct way. Thank you. And Chutaj, just as we begin to turn into the second uh, element and look at India more widely, can you take us into why Narendra Modi referred to India as Bharat? Well, I think... Um I, I do think, to some extent, the issue was was was, was exaggerated. You know, Bharat and India are used interchangeably in India's uh, constitution, and I think, in some ways, it's also a reflection of uh, of Indian domestic politics. You have a new. Uh, coalition of parties, opposition coalition comprising over two dozen parties, uh, which is named India. So they've obviously tried to reframe that as Bharat. But I think it's also in some, ref uh, it reflects the fact that India is facing its own form of, uh, you know, identity uh, politics. Was, you know, we, we talk frequently about uh, what we see in the United States, but uh, we see the same in India in, in the, and, and it's likely to grow in, in the run up to next year's parliamentary election. Is it a divisive word within India, though? I'm thinking, if I'm right, India's India in English and Tamil. It's Hindustan and Urdu and Kashmiri. Um, is, is using that term inflammatory within uh, his own country? Well, typically, Bharat is used for, you know, when you have yeah. correspondence in Hindi and you would use India for correspondence in, in English. The fact that they, they used it uh, in, in, in English language correspondence was actually yeah, somewhat surprising. But I think the issue is more of a, yeah, as I said, a microcosm of the broader device, divisive identity politics that we see in India, which is likely to grow in the run up to next year's uh, parliamentary elections. Let's talk about India's wider role in the world. And we were just talking very briefly about President Biden, who left the G20 early and went straight off to Vietnam, emphasizing how close the relations are becoming there. Samir, what did uh, this whole gathering say to you about India's relations with, with the US? Um, they certainly spoke quite well to India's relations with the US. I think there was, uh, there was uh, a general sense of warmth Contrast that. I know it's a different uh, spin on the question to Justin Trudeau, who didn't seem to have a very good trip to India. Uh, there are some tensions with regards to uh, Sikh activists in Canada, which I think uh, soured 
the Canadian sort of participation. But for the Americans, I think it was a, generally a, a sort of a warm and cordial uh, visit. And I think the other thing to, to keep in mind is that India is not anti-American. Uh, it is very happy to cooperate with America ever since you know, George W. Bush and the nuclear power sharing a great arrangement, which is now you know, nearly 20 years ago or thereabouts. Uh, there's been good cooperation at the level of technology sharing. There continues to be good uh, cooperation at that level. And, and there's a lot of ground, I think, still to be covered in, in building that defense relationship with the USA as well. So, you know, as India just doesn't feel the need to choose and its stature is growing. And therefore, more countries like America are coming to its doorstep with, I think, tantalizing offers for, for cooperation, collaboration, which India is going to welcome. Leslie, there's been quite a transformation, hasn't it, over those 20 years? But if you think back, I can remember voices in Washington seeing India as essentially on the, the Soviet side, if you go that far back. And suddenly the real strength of the relationship, a lot of contacts with Congress and so on. This has been a, a transforming 20 years. It has, and it's been bipartisan. And, you know, in, in many ways, it reflects, as we know, right, China's growing role. But if you go back even to the George W. Bush administration, before the 9-11 attacks, that was an administration that campaigned on a very clear understanding of geopolitics. And India was part of the equation. What would the strategy be as the distribution of power changes? And that, you know, that has been a through line throughout. It's clearly accelerated um, in the current period. And I, you know, um, to Samir's comment, India, you know, India, the U.S. and India, many people are coming. I think you have to separate out the U.S.-India partnership as being um, in a league of its own in terms of the significance and and of the potential. Um, And in that Indo-Pacific strategy, the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy, India's absolutely center. It's not only because of China, it's clearly about China, but I think that the the sense of a some commonality, one doesn't want to exaggerate it, right, but two very large countries, both democracies, both with very complex um, domestic polities. But you have, we have seen um, the U.S. commitment grow bipartisan, and it's also grounded in uh, the growth of the Indian diaspora in the United States, which in its own right is deeply complex, but is very wealthy. It has the highest median family income of any ethnic group within the United States and is increasingly playing a very important role in I'm thinking US of the whole belt of highly qualified uh, medical professionals around Washington, attracted by the National Institutes of Health and everything. But it's, uh, that is in its own way quite a political force. Chittich, where does this leave Pakistan? It was very hard to get into a conversation about the region uh, 20 years ago without uh, the U.S. and Pakistan being the focus of everything one would talk about. Well, one thing I would say is that, you know, one of India's major foreign policy accomplishments is, is the ability to dehyphenate the relationship with Pakistan. So the fact that India has in some ways managed to transcend the region in its uh, in its foreign policy. Uh, and I, I'm not entirely sure if that that is sustainable, We're being surrounded by several countries, whether, whether it be Pakistan, Sri Lanka, or Bangladesh. These are three countries that have all sought uh, IMF uh, support. So uh, I think... I think to, to a degree, uh, India has been successful on that front on being able to dehyphenate the relationship with Pakistan vis-a-vis its relationship with the United States. 
Uh, but at the same time, I don't know how sustainable it is to be able to transcend the region, uh, being surrounded by several countries which are facing instabilities. And also just to, I mean, I, just to pr- perhaps add on the U.S.-India relationship, I definitely believe it's it's, it's robust. I think there's uh, there's a high degree of bipartisan consensus in in, in the U.S. on uh, on on the U.S.-India relationship. I think the two countries where there's such a high degree of bipartisan consensus are are, are India and China. China is a long-term strategic rival. India is a long-term strategic partner, irrespective of the outcome of next year's presidential election in the U.S. But I wondered if there is a degree of irrational exuberance in Washington on on the relationship with India. Uh, I mean, I think there is a degree of fragility uh, that, that that needs to be further explored. For instance, I don't think India is in a position to replace China as the factory of the world anytime soon. There are limits on market access. And I think there are underlying risks of the U.S. even losing patience with India as geopolitical tensions grow with uh, with China and India continues to be seen to be sitting on the fence on particular issues. And that point about trying to replace China or whether it could in any way replace China as the factory of the world is a really interesting point. We've heard a lot of distress from companies trying to do exactly that. And that's one of the things I'll be looking at when I go uh, to India in about a month. Samir, what should we make of the moon landing? Symbolic or a real sense, a real uh, evidence of fantastic technological power. Okay, so this has actually been a really big deal for for a lot of people of of Indian heritage and Indians. Uh, I can certainly say from personal uh, experience, I've had family members sending me memes with the Indian flag on the moon, for example. And uh, and it it is a big accomplishment. It's the fourth country only to, to actually achieve this after US, USSR, China. Uh, just given the Cold War heritage of the space programs, it's the USSR that did it. Uh, in terms of what it means for India's space program going forward, I, I couldn't tell you, but what it, I think, means for it right now is is another piece of really striking evidence around India's arrival today and, and a source of real pride. There's a lot of unrequited pride amongst Indians, I think, uh, that is is now starting to express itself not necessarily in a chauvinistic or arrogant way, I mean, it can be, but I think in a very natural way, which is uh, this is a country that is not very old since independence. It's a country that's had a very difficult past uh, as a colony. And within the space of you know 80 years, it is actually landing a spaceship on the moon. It is hosting the G20. And it is a country that others are coming to, to its doorstep, asking for it to, to help them in, in a variety of global challenges. And the, its leading business people would also point out, look, a lot of the technology might be invisible from other countries, but things like the, the digital technology that gets banking to the unbanked on, on their mobile phones and so on is also transforming. But let's turn just briefly at the end to the internal dynamics in India, because this is also part of its uh, how it is seen in, in the world. And it is one, it's getting, it comes under a lot of criticism uh, from British media for this and for the, uh, the Modi government in particular. Leslie, what's your take on how the world should should see the Modi government and these tensions inside? Well, I mean, I, you know, I guess from the from the US perspective, this is an enduring problem across more relationships than not, right? When you have, when you're faced by a country that's so significant, so consequential in terms of the strategic environment, but has its own internal um, uh, struggles, whether it's on questions of democracy or human rights or open societies, academic freedom, all the things that are in the press, you know, how do you manage that? And what's your, you know, how do you set your priorities? And 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 some people think that you know that human rights card should be out front. 
Um, and this is an administration from the U.S. point of view that has, has made a very, you know, open commitment to values, to democracy in particular. Biden started out, you know, framing his international relations as being one that was about democracy versus authoritarianism. But when it comes to India, um, the priority really has been not on the domestic, not calling that out, not making that first. And and to be honest, I think that's the right call, because if you really look, and I don't just mean, you know, casually, if you look systematically at what leads to positive change on any of those value propositions, it's not actually one country calling out another, which isn't to say it shouldn't be done. That's not what moves the needle. And I think the Biden administration view is invest in the relationship do as much as you can to put your own house in order. Tall bar in the United States of America today. Um, and forge positive relationships around things like digital economy, support the gender agenda, get behind India on expanding its digital public infrastructure. Because we all know when your middle class grows, when you invest in education, when you invest in women, other things frequently, not always, China's the standout here, but frequently other things follow. Just to add, I mean, these allegations of democratic backsliding or or human rights concerns, they're not unfounded, but I think it also needs to be put in a degree of uh, perspective. You know, India, it's it's an imperfect democracy, but it is a democracy nevertheless. And I would draw attention to the, you know, very vibrant opposition that you see within the country. You know, the BJP lost an important state election earlier this year in Karnataka. We've seen the formation of a new national level coalition, opposition coalition comprising of two dozen parties. And India is nowhere near where it was, say, in 1975 when a state of of emergency was declared. Uh, so I think there are genuine concerns. And, and to some degree, I think uh, the, the elephant in the room during the G20 presidency was, was India's domestic, social and political challenges. Uh, but I think it does need to be put in a degree of perspective. Samir, do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I think uh, when Modi came to, into power in 2014, uh, there was a lot of made about uh, you know his role in the riots in Gujarat when he was uh, the minister there. And that sort of fixation uh, on sort of majoritarian politics, I think has actually obscured the fact that parliamentary politics in India is just quite unlike the practice of parliamentary politics uh, in the UK. I mean, Sheshi Tharoor made this point in one of his books. It's just such a large country uh, that you need to be careful, I think, in terms of understanding sort of the nuances around majoritarian politics and sort of minority uh, respect. It's a very shaky edifice, arguably, to keep India going. And uh, I think the fact that it, the modernization agenda is one of Modi's principal priorities uh, means that that sort of quite strong central control in what is quite a large, unwieldy parliamentarian system is, I think, quite a difficult thing to fathom. And I think it's it's going to continue to be something that we're going to have to fathom in order to sensibly understand uh, what is sort of successful politics inside of India. Samir, thank you for that. And just take us back finally to wrap all this up to the small country called the UK. Its its press was very uh, full for a week of, of, of pictures of Rishi Sunak and his wife in New Delhi. How do you think the Prime Minister handled that trip? I thought it played to the obvious strength that here in the, you know, the UK, we've got a, a British Indian Prime Minister visiting India. It's uh, a really striking thing to show how far Britain has come, actually, and its own sort of post-imperial journey. Uh, I suppose uh, one would argue that uh, you know Rishi Sunak has got his own political issues to, to to deal with in the in the UK around you know a very very imminent election that he may uh, struggle to to contest successfully. But I think as a moment in time, 
even if it's not a moment that we necessarily reflect on uh, for many years to come. As a moment in time, it's a real marker, I think, of of India and Britain achieving a sort of post-imperial, not parity, but certainly a handshake that I think would have been unthinkable even 20, 30 years ago. Leslie, just in response to that, do you want to let out a yelp of a different view? Well, I just think, you know, we need to recognize that Rishi Sunak didn't come to power through a national election that said we're so ready to put a dark Indian man in, in number 10. So with some degree of modesty about how much Britain has actually changed... Uh, and and what is he you know what is he representing? Is he saying let's open up our borders, let's let you know diverse people in? This is this is not a government that's pursuing an agenda that reflects you know the values of a, a nation transformed. So it's a nice optic, but um, I, I think you've I think we've got to be a little bit modest about the transformation. I can feel so. A it's, whole... it's a fudged a, it's a fudged <laughs> Obama moment basically. Hmm. No, let's not have that hmm. one. I, I can feel a whole other longer conversation starting, but we can't go into that. So we are going to have to stop now. Next week, we may be staying on the UN theme or the, the big international gathering theme. Um, I'm flying out, as is Leslie, to the United Nations General Assembly. And we may look at how all that is working. It depends what happens in the week, though. A big thank you to my guests, Leslie Vinjamuri. Chitaj Bajpayee, Samia Puri. Do follow them all on Twitter. The links are in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So please do like, follow and subscribe and leave us a review. To read more from all our experts or to find out about our events, and this is the peak season for events, or to become a member, and we'd really love to have you, very lively AGM this week, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org where you can follow the work of all our programs, including our Americas program and our Asia-Pacific programs and our UK program. Goodbye for me, Bronwyn Maddox. 